So Petzl is really in the uh, in the business of providing fall protection, access equipment, and rescue equipment uh, for for many industries, including uh, the wind energy uh, sector. Welcome to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. I am your co-host, Alan Hall, and here from Canada, the oh. queen of COVID, Dr. Rosemary Barnes. Welcome, Rosemary. Thanks. And <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, thanks, you think, right? It's not my favorite introduction, but accurate <laughs> on this particular day. <laughs> We're always truthful on this show, very truthful. And from the largest wind energy state in America, Texas, Joel Saxon of Wind Power Lab. Welcome, Joel. Thank you, sir. It's true. We have a very busy, busy week. Uh, we're all still recovering from ACP San Antonio. Uh, <laughs> there was an outbreak of COVID, evidently, and everybody's <laughs> still recovering. But, but we're back and better than ever. So let's get uh, Rosemary's thoughts on this carbon removal technology that the U.S. government is throwing $3.5 billion at. And then we have a, a guest interview. We haven't had those in a while. So we're going to have Michelle Goulet from Petzl, one of Rosemary's favorite helmet makers. And Michelle is going to talk about all the different safety uh, products that they have and what you need to do with your safety gear to check it out, make sure it's working properly, and how to dispose of it. This is a lot of good, good information there from Michelle. And then after uh, the interview with Michelle, we have, we'll talk about the DOE 2022 Collegiate Wind, Farm, Collegiate Wind Competition, which uh, we all saw down in San Antonio which is really, really cool. So how Rosemary kind of describes some of that carbon removal technologies. So Rosemary, this is in your sweet spot of the uh, U.S. federal government is, is going to pour $3.5 billion into uh, carbon capture. So the Department of Energy said uh, it's going to support four, what they quote, large-scale regional direct air capture hubs. And uh, so where those are, we should find out because it doesn't really talk to that, uh, that they hope to remove 1 million tons of carbon dioxide annually at each of these four hubs. So <clears throat> part of the two, two companies get named quite often are Carbon Engineering and, and Climeworks. And I think we've talked about Climeworks, which are building uh, direct air capture facilities. And Rosemary, you and I have talked about what those facilities do and what they, what they try to do. If they're trying to remove 1 million tons of CO2 annually, the U.S. produces about 5,000 million metric tons of CO2. So it's like 4 out of 5,000. There's a big gap there. What, what are they <laughs> going to learn with these 1 million ton CO2 removal systems? Yeah, I, I mean, so I think I, I probably would have said this the last time that we talked about direct air capture or any kind of, um, you know, carbon capture and storage. It, it's going to be an important technology, but it's never going to be, it's not something that you do instead of decarbonizing. And you can sure. see that from the, the scale that you just mentioned. So, yeah, if they're capable of capturing a million tons of CO2 annually, which is absolutely huge compared to what anyone is currently doing so don't underestimate the the scale of um yeah like the size of the challenge that they've set themselves 
I mean, if you look at the, so this is a little bit similar to what um, Elon Musk's X Prize is trying to do, and they're spending a hundred million dollars yep. um, getting projects that um, they're working. They to win the grand prize, the teams have to first demonstrate a working solution of a scale of at least a thousand tons per year. So we're not even up to a thousand tons a year yet. And um, yeah, so the um, DOE and the X Prize both are aiming for a technology that will eventually scale to a million tons per year at a you know a reasonable cost. So yeah, we're not it, currently a thousand tons a year is a huge challenge, and then they're eventually projecting to a million, which is more huge. And even that is yeah, like one drop one, in the bucket, right? Five thousandth of what the U.S. is alone is currently emitting. So you can kind of see from that that this is not the solution to climate change and i think you see so much disagreement people yelling at each other even about carbon capture um yeah. most people that are you know really serious about um the energy transition and um people professionals working in this field uh, i feel most people get really annoyed and upset about the fact that people are focusing on carbon capture and They'll say things like, um, you know, this is, it hasn't worked yet. It's very expensive. It's um, just a way for fossil fuel companies to keep on doing what they're doing and um, that it can never be the, the solution to climate change. And sure. I think all of that is true. However, we're never going to get to actual zero emissions. You know, it's not, it's not really possible when you think about things like agriculture and some of the natural processes like, you know, permafrost permafrost thawing um, and other things like that and uh, and even fertilizers I mean so far there isn't a really good solution to stopping all emissions from that so right for those last bits the truly hard to abate stuff not people call a lot of things hard to abate that really aren't but there will be some things that technology is not just going to come along with a cheaper better solution that has zero emissions for everything. <laughs> And for those, that's the last little bit that we need the, the carbon capture for. So what we need is to be working on these technologies with a long lead time because it's not easy. Um, so, you know, if we have got all the easy stuff done by 2040, hopefully, um, then we need the carbon capture working to take care of the really hard stuff. Um, we can't just start then, you know, because it's a hard problem. So. Right. I agree that we definitely need to be, and we need programs like this, give people a reason to continue working on it. However, we need to do so in a way that doesn't make people think that we don't need to do anything else because it's never going to be a replacement for, you know, swapping fossil fuel electricity generation with renewable electricity generation. It's always going to cost thousands of times probably more to um, you know, try and solve things in that way, not to mention the huge amount of energy that it takes to actually run the direct air capture. So, um, right. yeah, we somehow need to be working very hard on it, but not get, <laughs> get ahead of ourselves with what it's going to do. And I think it's pretty hard for like these like buzzy high-tech industries to avoid you know hyperbole where they're talking about what they're going to achieve um and i think that that's part of the the issue is that yeah we need carbon capture but please don't pretend that this <laughs> this is going to solve problems that it won't explain to me why if we know where the large carbon emission sources are are we doing enough to remove the carbon dioxide right at the source so some people are doing without changing the whole factory over some people 
are doing that, but not very successfully. There's, um, there's a couple. There's one in Norway that's somewhat successful in, in capturing carbon and storing it. But the problem is that all of the concentrated CO2 sources are things that need to go away. It's burning fossil fuels. It's, it's, um, you know, it's, um, it's mines like coal mines or, um, yeah, extracting oil or gas. That's where you see big streams of CO2 that you can just capture. So the easy stuff is stuff that in 10, 20 years, we just need to be not doing that. <laughs> so that's not, mm. to me, that's not really the, the future. I mean, there will still be some fossil fuels, um, even in a, a zero emissions world. We still will want to make you know, some things out of fossil fuels, like, um, like plastics sure. and maybe some other stuff. Um, yeah. But in general, where the technology... The, the technolo technological advancement needs to happen is for things that are still going to exist in 20 years' time because that's kind of what you're aiming for. So if you spend all your effort on the easy carbon capture, which we have <laughs> categorically just failed to do effectively with, you know, 20, 30 years of effort and a lot of money spent on it, um, that stuff, that really does just feel like a, a, you know, a fig leaf for the fossil fuel industry to pretend like they have, you know, like there's some place in the future for what they're currently doing, the same things that they're doing now. Um, yeah, so that's why these big projects that are about, I mean, they're really, it's not about the amount of um, CO2 that they're going to grab out of the atmosphere as part of this program. It's about giving several companies, several technologies, a reason to keep smart people, you know, getting paid a salary for a couple of decades while well. they figure out all the problems. Um, that's, that's what this, well, it, I mean, that's what makes sense to me. Um, and that's the right way to think of it. But you just never see it promoted okay. in that way. <laughs> yeah. Because it's not. No, not you don't. <laughs> you, to you totally don't. It's kind of Ellen. <laughs> they, they never put the two, two equations together. But like you're saying, uh, where you would put the plant, right? The one that's going right now in Iceland by Climeworks. Uh, is in Iceland. When I think of major super polluters or, or emitters of CO2, I don't think of you know, Reykjavik. I don't think of Iceland, mm. but it's 4,000 tons of CO2 per year, right? <laughs> so it's a minimal amount, but it's where, exactly like you say, Rosemary, it's where the engineers are working on it. Because I would think if you're going to put a hub in the US, you'd put one outside of New York, one outside of LA, maybe one outside of Houston, uh, one outside mm. of Chicago, uh, because of, it's easier to yeah. collect um uh, CO2 from like car emissions and all those kind of things that are emitted there. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure how Absolutely. much the CO2, atmospheric CO2 actually varies within the yeah, maybe atmosphere. Yeah, maybe it just goes dispersed. That's what, yeah. That, yeah I, I, that's what I'm saying. I don't saying. think it varies much. <laughs> like, like we don't yeah. know. No. Do we do oh, know? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, people know. We just don't know. The three of us don't know. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Climate scientists oh, wow. know. I mean, okay. they're measuring it all, all the time, and we could easily look that up, and maybe it will before the next time we talk about it. But I think... Well, we should. Yeah, we sh like for these early stage projects, I would put them where the engineers are because then that makes it very easy to go and, you know, have a look and, and monitor. For larger scale demonstration projects, I would put them where you've got a clean energy source that couldn't be used for something else potentially. So I think that's why Iceland, because they've got as much geothermal as they want, basically. Yeah. You can yeah. put it somewhere right. next to, you know, some hydro <laughs> that wasn't fully utilised or, um, you know, something like that. Um, and then secondly, you need some, something to do with the CO2. So probably that's the, the harder part is finding, you know, a good reservoir to, sh to shove it. Um, and yeah. so 
that might be in um, a, a depleted oil or, or gas field or, or something like that. And that's where this um, this, this yeah. uh, carbon engineering and, and oxy low carbon ventures with 1.5 is perfect out in the Permian Basin, right? If they're going to build a, a prototype to capture right. 1 million tons of CO2, like where is there a better place to inject it into the, into the ground? Um, but I think at the same time, like in the U.S., I know there's a, a massive problem of, you know, leaking wells. So if you're looking at controlling some some greenhouse gases right. out in the Permian, the the you know methane is 30 times worse for as a greenhouse gas for the environment than CO2 is. Maybe they should stick some money into plugging those wells right. instead of <laughs> snagging CO2 out of the air. No, you're 100 percent right. And there's a thousand different projects that you would do if your goal yeah. was to actually you know reduce atmospheric CO2. This is the one of the last places that you would spend your money, but it's um so that's why I mean if you <laughs> assume that smart people uh you know have thought about this for more than a few minutes, which which I do assume that they have, um their goal has to be the technology development because um it's so incredibly expensive compared to there's a million things that you could do that would be yeah. you know have a lower cost of abatement than than this one. So so, so Rosemary, then why don't you have your top ten list of carbon dioxide reducing items like what are those top 10 things you would go after why don't i see that list when i google it i don't i don't i don't see a list you think that there would be a list right ocean cleanup has a list they'll give you the top 1000 places where plastic is coming out of why do we not have a list on the top 10 co2 producing places and how we want to reduce them yeah i mean i could i could make my list and uh, i I'm pretty sure that some other people have made have made lists. Um, yeah, maybe it's not talked about okay. a lot, but I mean, el- just cleaning up electricity grid is <laughs> is by far the the well, actually, uh, that's wrong. The 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 cheapest um, cost of abatement is uh, energy efficiency, and that's what no one ever wants to talk about. But yeah. you know, you can mm. uh, it, it doesn't even cost you money; it saves you money to but do it, and um, so it's got like a negative cost of abatement. And then after that, yeah, ele- electricity is. Um, the reason why I've focused the last nearly 20 years of my career on that because that's by far the easiest way and it also frees up decarbonizing a lot of other stuff that uses that electricity. So, um, mm. yeah, that's that's where we, we start. And then there is a li- um, there's a chart, maybe I'll, I'll find it for the next time we talk. I think it's McKinsey, one of those big consulting firms. It's, it's a few years old now, but they did do, um, have you seen it? It's got like little bar, it's a bar chart with, all of the different things that you can decarbonize in order of how, well, the width of the bar is like how much carbon we could um, eliminate. Right. And then they order them right. um, from mo- uh, least expensive to most expensive. And so it is kind of, there are charts out there that will describe what's the, the cheapest, cheapest way to go. Why hasn't the US government or European governments been knocking on that list? Um, it seems to me like we're, we're, we're around this quite a bit. That'd be something I, I ought to be hearing at least once a month of, Hey, we're, these are the top 10 things we're going after. And this, this is why. And I think Rosemary should present that yeah, at COP 27. Uh, <laughs> it's not mine. It's like, not, come on, it's, right? I mean, it's not, it's not new. Everyone's seen this chart, haven't they? I'll have to, I'll have to share it. Um, well, I, I've, I've seen the chart. <laughs> yeah. They talk to the chart, but they don't talk. It's easy to talk to the chart. It's easy to talk to the chart about, okay, this is the big emitter. But then the hard part is the part you're talking about, trying to reduce the emissions there. How are you going to do it, right? And, and so we get these projects like this $3.5 billion for carbon capture out of the air. 
which the administration will tout as being the, the way to fix the planet on some level. But you and I just discussed that it's not even in the top 10, maybe in the, not even the top 100. So why is this being touted so highly when we need to be working on the top 10? Yeah, it's because no one is project managing this energy transition. You know, it's... Um... Bingo. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's exactly it. Yeah. You, you need somebody project managing and you, and you don't. <laughs> I'll volunteer. I'll be the world's project manager for the energy transition. Um, <laughs> well, there's three and a half billion dollars. It seems like it's ready to pay you to do that. Yeah, so but there's also... Let's get on it. I mean, there's not many countries that have set aside, you know, well, this is how much it's going to cost to solve the energy transition. So we're going to use our money in, in the best way. You know, it's all... Everybody's trying yeah. to work within different countries, um, current economies. And people are worried about jobs and existing industries. and you know, developing new technology, sure. at, um, it, it's new, new jobs, it's good for a country to develop that technology themselves because then that's a future industry for, for them. Um, and, yeah, it also sounds like most of the things that you see disproportionate amount of money or attention on, so, you know, hydrogen would be a good example. It's something that sounds like a pain-free solution um, to the right. the um, yeah to the climate crisis. So, yeah, hydrogen can do everything. So it sounds like, okay, great, all we need to do is just make hydrogen cheaper, so we'll work on that. Um, and, you know, uh, direct air capture, it's like, oh, it doesn't really matter what we do to the environment because we'll just suck it out again. So, it's, you know, like it sounds, sounds really appealing in that way. Whereas energy efficiency, for whatever reason, just doesn't sound exciting to people. It's like it's a harder sell to tell people to stop doing things than to pay some smart people to develop new technologies, you know. Um, so, yeah, I guess politics is a reason. This... Everyone in the world isn't a isn't an engineer yeah, and I, i've got to say in, <laughs> Some people are in the u.s yeah. we have to be we've got to be the highest energy consumption per capita in the, in the world so we're probably the the, yeah. the worst at at uh energy efficiency um and i say i say us as as a whole no you definitely are um <laughs> not 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 it's not like it's not close i don't think oh maybe there might be some middle eastern um countries that, that do a little bit worse but out of the big countries definitely the u.s is the worst and Australia is, is shockingly high on a per capita basis as well. I think Europeans use less than half of what um, someone living in the U.S. does um, on That's average. True. So, yeah, um, def definitely. Uh, but, yeah, I, I mean, I've well, never understood why energy efficiency is not more popular because it saves you money, but um, people just don't want to do it. <laughs> like an engineering or throwsy episode yeah but it's just a, in the, the works it, i think part of the problem uh, i've been trying i just can't think of an interesting angle for it it's just it's not it's not inherently interesting and sexy like a new technology is yeah like i could make a dozen videos on direct air capture and that would all that all those videos would be really interesting to people and they would watch them it explode and i would make a video yeah. on energy efficiency and no one would, would watch it and um yeah so i mean people please write if you're watching it somewhere where you can comment or write in and tell us what's the what's the angle for energy efficiency that i can use to make a video on it because i think it's definitely the, the biggest thing that we should be doing more of that we're not um and it's, i've got a guess for you for that i've got a guest for you for that episode he's uh he's from he's from northern wisconsin he's 69 years old uh, and his his name is actually art saxon he's my dad and he will tell you close that refrigerator turn those lights off don't, don't turn the ac on don't turn the heat up he's he's your guy he'll tell you speaking of guests we are going to take a quick commercial break and but when we come back 
we're going to be talking with uh, Michelle Goulet, Market Development Manager for Wind Tower and Rope Access for Petzl. So he's going to give us all the great details of, of the safety gear that Petzl provides right after the break. Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground, but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound, but Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet, and it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. I have with us today Michelle Goulet, who is the Market Development Manager for Wind Tower and Rope Access with Petzl America, based in Salt Lake City, Utah. Michelle, welcome to the program. Hi, Alan. How are you? Great. Hey, we got a, a long list of things to talk about, and obviously Petzl is a, is a safety group and has been manufacturing a wide variety of safety gear. And, and obviously in wind, as wind turbines get taller and as we move offshore, safety becomes even more important because every step you take is just a little bit higher and it makes uh, sense for all the operators, technicians, to make sure they have the proper gear on if they're going to be doing work at height. Uh, one of the big questions that we get a lot of times is, uh, what's the appropriate safety gear and what happens if a technician were to get hurt at, at height? Uh, is, is there safety gear that should, should be taken along to, up the tower, up into the nacelle to bring down an injured comrade? Is there, is there products that Petzl designed specifically for that situation? There is, right. So Petzl is really in the, uh, in the business of providing fall protection, access equipment, and rescue equipment uh, for, for many industries, including uh, the wind energy uh, sector. Um, if you're staying within the nacelle or uh, in the column, uh, generally speaking, fall protection equipment is uh, is one of the only things you need. But no fall protection system is is complete without a a rescue method or, or a rescue uh, kit that would allow you to uh, intervene quickly in the event of uh, somebody fainting as as they're climbing into the wind turbine or uh, somebody falling there and becoming in, incapacitated. Uh, these wind turbines are, are usually located, uh, you know, in isolated areas, and of course, uh, now offshore, uh, rescue may not be uh, within uh, a few minutes uh, uh, time frame. So you have to be prepared. If you're wearing fall protection equipment, uh, your partner, hopefully you're not alone, you're always working with someone, and both of you are well-versed in uh, knowing how to, uh, to deploy and access a casualty, stabilize them, and lower them down to a, a safe level. And, of course, Petzl has equipment uh, that, that will accomplish that. So are there specific things that you should be looking for if, if I'm a technician in terms of gear to, to bring people back down? Is there, are, are there partic particular things to, to look out for? in that gear yeah generally speaking if you're climbing on a ladder way you'll be connected to a uh, a cable grab or uh, or a rail uh, grab uh, on the ladder way uh, or you'll be climbing with lanyards and uh, if you're incapacitated you'll be hanging from those things uh, so you're the first uh, uh, the, the first uh, function of your uh, 
of your rescue kit is to be able to transfer the casualty from whatever they're hanging on onto the uh, rescue system that will lower you to a safe level. So uh, a rescue kit, when it comes for rescuing a partner uh, in fall protection, is always uh, about uh, being able to lift the casualty a little bit and connect them to the uh, lowering line and then disconnect them from whatever held them up there, uh, a cable grab or, or a lanyard. And then you have a descent control device that will allow you to to uh, slowly but surely uh, lower that person to, to a safe level uh, where they can be evacuated from. Yeah, so that gets always more complex if you're outside of the wind turbine <laughs> doing work cleaning, cleaning or working on blades and stuff. Uh, the people who do that, uh, generally speaking, have a lot more training in rope access. They're certified under SPRAT or IRATA, and they, they have a bunch of tricks to be able to get their partner down in a, in a timely manner. Yeah, it's it, it's complicated. It is. It can be. So so we we engineer a kit together so that it's as simple as possible because in an emergency situation, you know, spirits are high, somebody may be injured and screaming and there's a lot of uh, if you're not trained as a professional rescuer, you're not used to dealing with those kinds of emergency situations. So whatever uh whatever a manufacturer can facilitate for you, it it'll be appreciated. So so as long as you can get above the uh the casualty and anchor uh the little pulley system as well as the descent control uh device above that casualty, you should be able to raise them and then start lowering them very, very quickly in a matter of minutes. Uh, of course, if if this happens in the latter way, you'll have to have a, a way to get around the casualty and get above them. So Y lanyards, uh, two-legged lanyards will allow you to climb around, around and over the casualty uh, to get up uh, in a, a better position to accomplish, uh, to accomplish that rescue lowering procedure. So it, it's really actually difficult to keep up on all the new safety gear that appears every year uh and i i know as technicians are out there working on turbines at the moment uh it's it's hard to keep track of all the new technology advancements all the improved safety features that are out there what are some of the newer components that are on the market well it's interesting that you're you're asking about that because ansi has just changed their descent control device standard it is now uh uh, rated uh, the the ratings on uh, descent control devices is now Z three five nine point nine. It used to be in the point four standard, but that's all going to be hoisting devices, lifting devices. Uh, now the Z three five nine point nine is all on descent control, and there are six different types of uh, <laughs> of descent control devices. So one of them that has made an appearance and is is doing great in in the in the wind industry is the type that you just connect to yourself and you just jump, and that would be uh, and that would lower you at a gradual speed to the ground or uh, hopefully to the platform before you hit the water. <laughs> Uh, in a wind turbine, but of course you have other emergencies that can happen on on wind turbines, and one of them would be that the the nacelle, the the controls there, uh, everything catches fire, electrical fire, that sort of thing. So you have to evacuate the the wind turbine, and sometimes 
the only way out uh, would be uh, from the nacelle uh, hatchway because the the uh, nacelle column could be full of smoke and you, you couldn't breathe uh, depending on where the where the problem is and stuff so you have to be ready uh when you're working on, in wind turbines to be able to evacuate quickly and uh so there's this type one which is clip and jump <laughs> uh there's a type two but they haven't qualified what that is yet because the international standard, uh, ISO standard has a type two and it, it wouldn't fit within this standard too much. So right now there's only a type one, type three, type four, type five. We sell, we sell a descent control a device called the ID. And the ID is, stands for industrial descender and uh, it has a handle on it. And if you pull the handle, you go, if you release the handle, you stop. It has the additional uh, safety benefit that if you pull the handle too far, you'll go into an anti-panic mode and you'll also stop. So the idea there with this device is to try and make it as safe as possible so that you have to find the middle ground to descend. If you let go, you stop. If you pull too far, you stop. Type uh, four would be one that you just pull to go, release to stop. Uh, the rig, uh, the Petzl rig uh, works like that. And in type five is just like a brake a break bar rack that creates friction on the device that you can uh, you can. Uh, modify the friction depending on the amount of bars you add and just a descent control device like a, a figure eight or something like that but both of those devices have had their heyday uh they're they're sometimes used in very long descents uh, like the brake bar rack might still be a great tool for that but these other devices have made things safer because uh, you know you could get hit from something above and let go of everything you're not going to go go anywhere with those uh, other uh, devices that i mentioned the type two and the type uh, Type no, no type two, <laughs> type three and type four. <laughs> I, I know one of the things that everybody's worried about when they're working on ropes, particularly on blades, is there, there's just a lot of sharp edges, and, and even I'm working on the cells. There's so many sharp edges, so you're worried about your ropes getting damaged, and you worry about you know your gear, which is expensive, right? You want to protect that gear as much as you can. What are some of the new features about sort of protecting the ropes from all those those friction edges and those rough rough fiberglass edges? Sure, there was some well documented uh, uh, fatal, uh, fatalities in the oil industry recently where rope rope failures occurred, and uh, uh, these were on oil platforms and the people fell into the sea. And uh, uh, so obviously, uh, Spratt and Arata have pay, paid a lot of attention to this and uh, make sure that uh, you're using the correct uh correct methods to protect your rope over edges and stuff like that so uh petzl has has launched this year a couple of new products uh we have the protect and the protect plus the protect is uh is a pvc type of uh material that velcros together over your rope has a little rope clip uh, to clip to your rope so it doesn't move up and down and when you have a stationary rope uh, that's a really good product to use if you're going over a sharp edge. If you're going over even a sharper edge or or maybe a hot pipe or something like that, we have the Protect Plus, which is made out of uh, Technora and uh, Technora or uh, Kevlar uh, type fiber. And that, that gives you uh, twice the heat resistance and cut resistance as a normal uh, uh, rope pad would. We also launched a roller coaster. And that's usually, uh, that's uh, kind of two rollers on a frame that you put on a 90 degree edge. You place that, uh, you tie it down on, on that edge or you can bolt it on there. Uh, and and obviously those rollers move as the rope moves. So if you're lowering somebody or raising them, uh, 
uh, you're always better, especially on the raises, you're always better to uh, use a, uh, a, a device where the rope will touch only ball bearing uh, shivs so that you're not going to increase the weight of the casualty or the worker by more than five or, or 10%, right? So, so that's good. If you didn't have that, you didn't you double the you double the weight of the uh, of the worker, so you need to use the right gear uh, in the right spot for that. Of course, yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of the uh, my co-host Rosemary Barnes, who can be with us today, uh, you know, sh- she's a big Petzl fan, and uh, you know, she's always about safety, right? So she's uh, she's about climbing safety, and as we bring more and more equipment up on the turbines, particularly on blade repairs, you see all kinds of grinders and cutters and <laughs> ultrasound equipment and all these, these, all these devices, which are not light, uh, but you can't obviously drop them because that's the safety hazard. So what are some of the uh, equipment bags and some of the uh, techniques to, to make sure that all the gear that you bring up with stays up with you? Right, right. So Spratt says any any tool that's heavier than ten pounds has to have its own belay system. It has to be a, it shouldn't be connected to your to your harness or anything. Um, if you have smaller tools that weigh less than ten pounds, uh, we have a we're launching shortly uh, some new. Uh, uh, equipment bags, uh, tool bags uh, that have uh, the ability to uh, connect a bunch of tethers on them. So all tools, all equipment needs to be tethered, of course, when you're working at height. Uh, uh, and uh, there's, I guess, the what manufacturers try to do is make it as convenient as possible to connect and disconnect these things uh, uh, so that it's easy for the worker. You know, it's not simple to design something that, you know, if you're going to use a big wrench, well, how do you keep that always connected and not interfere with the work at the same time? So you need to use swivels and make sure, make sure that, uh, that uh, the rope doesn't get too, the tether rope doesn't get too tangled up in things. So there's all little ingenious ways to, uh, to try and uh, accommodate, uh, accommodate that, keep the worker efficient in their work, but make sure that everything is, uh, uh, is tethered. We we recently had uh, people here at our training facility that work in the in the telecom industry. Every time something was about to come off the harness, they always would tether it first. So it's just a habit to get into, and uh, it's a good habit. <laughs> wow, yeah, that, that, it is a good habit. Uh, and Rosemary is also a, a, a fan of your helmet. She has one of your safety helmets, and, and it seems like. Uh, Helmets are sort of a fashion piece, but also a safety piece. And there's different varieties of helmets that the, you see the technician uses. You, you want to sort of talk to what the different helmet varieties are and, and which helmet you should use for which application? Sure, sure. O- OSHA mandates the use of ANSI certified helmets on uh, on work sites like uh, in the wind industry. Uh, so... Uh, ANSI has their standard Z89.1, which covers uh, all the necessary um, equipment performance requirements of good head protection, what it should have. And, uh, you know, there's penetration tests, there's there's flame tests so that it doesn't, <laughs> the helmet doesn't catch on fire. There's electrical uh, con- 
continuity test as well uh, that uh, that uh, is done, uh, and especially in the in the uh, wind industry, it's highly advisable to get a uh, an E-rated uh, helmet, a Type One E-rated helmet, uh, so that there is protection against electrical uh, hazards and and things like that. So you, unfortunately, you can't have any ventilation holes in your uh, in your helmet. Um, but uh, it's the better of two evils, I guess. Um, so a good helmet too, when you're working at height, chin strap, very important, not just the two point, but a four, four point uh, chin strap. Uh, if you're falling, these the helmets, uh, you know, your head can hit something and the helmet can, can pop off, even with a two point, just a chin strap. Best to have a, a good uh, work at height helmet with a, a, four, a four point chin strap so that even if the helmet gets uh, in contact with something uh, when you're falling it, it, it will probably stay on your on your head uh, the only time you don't want it to stay on your head is that you could in a confined space be suspended by your helmet uh, so our helmets are, are engineered to release at about uh, 50 about 100 100 pounds of force the the buckle will separate and that's a safety uh, feature so that uh, you won't uh, strangle yourself with the with the helmet so a lot of things to think about with the helmet but obviously comfort is very important because you want to make sure you're wearing something something not too heavy as well a lot of there's a lot of talk about type 2 helmets and their need and they tend to have protection on the sides and top impact uh and uh they tend to be a little heavier for working at heights. So people may think they want a type two helmet, but they really want a type one for the protection on the, on the top of uh, the head. Uh, and uh, having some space between the helmet and your head is also good too, because you could have something sharp penetrate through the, through the helmet. And there's only a, an allowable uh, penetration uh, distance there uh, if you want to meet that standard. Of course, you have the face shield as well. Very important. We have a very, uh, good uh, face shield. Uh, we have two of them. We have a half face and a full face. Uh, the half face is more for eye protection, that sort of thing. The full face is if you're going into a, uh, a breaker panel, uh, you know, or an electrical panel of any kind where there can be an arc flash or something. And you want that, you want that full face protected uh, uh, from, from any contact with the uh, and melted metals and stuff. Uh, so uh, that's the vizin. So that's the full face. The vizier is the half face. They both they both flip up and and get out of the way if you're not if you don't need them. And uh, they're of course both certified under the Z eighty eighty seven point one, which is an all, also an ANSI standard uh, for uh, protective uh, face and eye protection. Yeah, there's a lot to think about when when choosing a helmet. It's, it's just don't pick one randomly, right? You need to pick it for the application. We're going to be using it and add the safety pieces that you're going to be, you're going to need when you're actually doing the work. That's a good point, uh, Alan. Uh, you know, you have to think about you have to think about it as a head protection system. It's not only you know getting hit from above, but you'll sometimes need hearing protection that has to fit on the helmet and has to be able to lift back and and uh, be out of the way if you if you don't uh, use them if you're not using a grinder or something that that uh, will help protect. Uh, <laughs> or, or and you have to have an easy way to 
flip a, a shield down for eye protection. You may also have attachment points. We do on ours. We make a lot of headlamps, of course, and using headlamps in a nacelle, it, it can be very important, or if you're working inside blades and stuff. So having a good way to mount a, a headlamp on there uh, with a, a lot of lumens. We have, we have headlamps now that go from 500 to 900 lumens. You can light up the whole nacelle if you wanted to with uh, some of these smaller smaller headlamps and and one thing that we've been able to uh to do with headlamps is you know normally they work on the three triple a batteries but we've replaced those with a flat rechargeable battery so it'd be a lithium battery and uh you can recharge that many, many times for the value of about 900 uh, AAA batteries. So at first they seem a little expensive at $40, $40, somewhere around there. But when you think of the, all the rechargeable uh, uh, you know, conditions that you might have, you're going to save some money and you're going to help the environment as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the headlamps are totally the cool thing to have, right? I mean, if you have a good headlamp, everybody wants to steal your helmet. And which is which is normal, I suppose. <laughs> so one of the one of the key pieces for technicians and engineers is to make sure that their PPE is actually working and and that it is it is functional before they go out to a site. You typically want to check check your equipment. What are some of the recommended Petzl uh, inspections for harnesses and ropes and helmets and some of the metallic? carabiners and those kind of things what, what are some of the checkpoints there we recommend uh, a quick you know d daily inspection every time you're about to use a harness or a helmet or anything you know you should have a look at it and just make sure all the straps are okay none of the none of the fasteners are damaged or things like that there's always a quick little inspection that that occurs uh, depending on the company you work for and what your internal policy is and how often you use the gear uh, you may you may have a formal inspection every three or four months uh, OSHA recommends once a year uh, a very formal uh, evaluation where you write down whatever you see on each piece of product. You'll either fail the product, pass the product, or or uh, uh, indicate that the product needs a little monitoring throughout the year. Uh, so those are the three. Uh, so all of this, uh, every piece of gear that we sell, we sell an inspection sheet with it. To try and make things a little easier for for anybody, so uh, it's only a one page. You know, it's kind of a check mark thing. The first thing you want to check on a helmet is the date of manufacture, because helmets and any type of uh, textile material that we sell, harnesses, uh, slings, uh, uh, any any component that has textiles in them, as well as our helmets has a ten year shelf life. That's what Petzl uh, recommends. So even if it's sat on a shelf for 10 years after 10 years you shouldn't use that product there's there's a natural deterioration of, of nylon sometimes and helmets and and things like that so uh 10 years is the maximum life if if you're doing your inspection and you see oh you're within your 10-year period then you go through a series of of uh, check you know check marks things that you need to check on both uh, comfort elements but mainly safety elements that no little cracks on the side of the helmet or no stickers on the helmet and and things like that so that uh and same thing for harnesses 
right? You want to check the crucial load-bearing stitching to make sure there's no broken stitching in there. You want to make sure that the functionality of the of the connectors, the strap connectors, the adjustability of the not not everything is rusted out and stuff. Of course, going out to sea, <laughs> you're gonna have a lot more corrosion, right? At, at at sea. So the hardware, the hardware we have an indefinite life on like a carabiner as long as you inspect it once a year and it functions properly and the gate when you release it it closes automatically if uh, if that's the type of gate you're purchasing or if you have a screw gate you don't have any problems screwing it up and down and of course when you release the gate that it closes and, and there's no corrosion in there uh, that's great but out to sea sometimes there's corrosion that gets in the hinge area of carabiners so you release the gate and it doesn't close and lock automatically right so uh so obviously those are some of the things you need to check because a carabiner that you're using that's got an open gate in it loses about 60 70 percent of its strength so you don't want uh, non-functioning uh, uh, connectors or, or anything like that in your equipment cache you want to make sure that you inspect those on a regular basis and at least once a year unless you're unless the company you're working for feels that hey you guys are working hard you're out there every every day uh, maybe it would require a, a full full-on inspection every three months or every four months depending on your your company policy and if a, if a piece of equipment uh, ages out like a helmet ages out or a harness has some webbing that's been damaged to the point where you can't use it anymore what is the procedure to get rid of it? You just toss it in the trash or should it just, just be totally destroyed, like run over it or whatever you're going to do? Right. Well, harnesses have to be cut up so they never, never get used again uh, and really cut up because uh, we saw once somebody had found some of our harnesses in a bin and had sewn them back together, believe it or not. Uh, and uh, so <laughs> so we were able to solve that, that issue. Uh, but uh, destroying, you know, make a... You know, the, those helmets make great uh, flower pots. You know, you just drill holes through them and you you hang them up. And they look pretty cool, actually, as flower pots. So you, uh, but make sure that they're non-reusable, uh, right? Because sometimes you'll you'll uh, you'll uh, isolate something and then somebody will inspect it but and it failed it failed and somehow it gets back into the cir circulation so so you really have to make sure you have a good equipment management system we have a great 3 day class here for uh, uh that we provide a manufacturer training on uh on uh equipment uh, uh uh, equipment and PPE inspection and equipment management class uh, for end users. And we also have a train the trainer one too. So uh, uh, Petzl has a great, uh, great program for equipment inspection. Obviously it's within everybody's interest to make sure that uh, equipment that's not suited for, for use should be, uh, should be discarded properly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and uh, uh, we're going to wrap up here, but I think this, this is really good to get this information out because there's, there's going to be a lot of activity this spring, summer, and fall, and wind. And I know there's, as we know, there's a lot more wind turbines being uh, put up this summer, and, and it just makes a lot of sense. Everybody check your safety gear, make sure it's working properly. Go to the Petzl site if you have any questions and, and download the data sheet, check your equipment. And hey, if, if it's bad, get rid of it, destroy it, get rid of it. And, and, and if you have any questions, Michelle, do, do they just reach out to Petzl directly? Uh, is there, go to the website, what should they do? 
We have a, a number of uh, really good product information on their websites. There are tech tips on how to use it properly, how not to use it. Uh, there's uh, technical notices that are sold with every product that are all downloadable and stuff. So our, our website is a wealth of information. No problem. Also, we have, uh, if, if somebody wants to talk to a human being, that's fine too. We have technical sales reps uh, across uh, both the U.S. and Canada, around the world, of course, but here uh, at Petzl America, uh, we handle both Canada and the U.S., and we have about 30 reps that are in every region, and it's easy to uh, to get that contact information for those folks, so you have somebody local to talk to, but we also have a technical information manager here at Petzl that, that can take both your, your questions by written or in a phone call, and we'll be glad to uh, clear up any uh, any issues. Well, great. That, that's fantastic. That's good. That's good. Good to know. Michelle, thank you for being on the program. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a great summer. So we, we hope to have you back sometime soon to talk about some of the new safety gear in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, we hope to keep all the uh, wind turbine technicians uh, safe throughout the next six months to the next uh, 60 years. <laughs> lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, is very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. A lot of great information there, guys. So uh, if you missed it, rewind, re-listen to Michel Gallet because he has a lot of great safety information and a lot of new safety technology actually that uh we're going to see being used in the industry so interesting interview thanks michelle for being on the podcast a couple to wrap up this episode just a couple of things here uh we were down we were down at acp in san antonio the uh, department of, of energy held the collegiate wind competition so there were 12 competing colleges uh down there and rosemary and i walked down to that event and saw some some part of it actually uh they had rosemary how many wind turbines or not wind turbines they had a lot of wind turbines they had wind tunnels they had three wind tunnels like yeah. one large one and two sort of medium-sized wind tunnels yeah and then the kids one as well which was just some um oh yeah that's true right four, four a random sort of four homemade thing four yeah. yeah and um and a wave tank in front of it that was the the cool thing that um they added a floating a floating category or a floating aspect to the competition this year and um so yeah they've got the fans there and um, so this was for the younger younger kids i think up to high school um and they yeah have these four big big fans and you know they make a wind turbine and it makes electricity um i think the older kids are making their own generators you know winding them um yeah and they're winding generators yeah. that was cool and the younger kids are using using one that the competition provides um and then they also have to have a floating version where they put it in a wave tank and um they generate some little little waves and make sure that it can yeah operate and stay afloat in those wavy conditions so yeah i thought that was difficult. so it looked like there were Roughly three divisions there. So there was like the elementary school, middle school, then clearly high school age kids, and then on the collegiate level. Mm -hmm. And the collegiate teams were pretty well sized. Uh, they probably had eight, yeah. eight-ish people on the, on each of the teams uh, running the wind turbines through. And it, and from what we could tell, they're doing what uh, a variety of of wind speed 
uh, across the, the turbines, measuring the energy output. So it was it was it was a real sort of collegiate level uh, competition. I, I wouldn't. Yeah, it was as similar to probably Rosemary's competed in the SAE Formula um, car development uh, process. Yeah, and the I used the, to um, I did aero design competition was the one I did the most. But, and the aero design yeah, competition. Yeah, every, every year I was, for that in the Mojave Desert. I was in a solar car competition yeah. years ago, which okay. GM sponsored. We made a solar car and rode it across the United States. Yeah, so those competitions are really good uh, to to develop engineers. That's for that's I th a sure thing. Yeah, and I, I was excited to see the number of. I met with one there. of the teams uh, actually that was working in the like the breakfast area of my hotel while I was there, and it was really cool to speak with them actually and kind of just grab their backgrounds. Like one guy was an electrical engineer, another person on the team was a mechanical engineer. They had a software guy, um, and and what I was really liking about the idea was uh, okay. So we'll go back up a second. In the U.S., we don't have a whole lot of post secondary uh, education focused on wind energy. Right. Um, you know, a company I work for is a Danish yeah. company. You have DTU, you have University of Aarhus, you have a lot of in the European side and Bristol and things. You have a lot of uh, post-secondary education focused directly on wind. And I know there's a few programs in the U.S. that are coming along, but yeah. seeing that they were grabbing, I said, you know, what's your background in wind? What do you like about wind? And the guy was like, oh, I was an electrical engineer. And they just grabbed me to be a part of this team because I'm pretty good at, you know, at my craft. I said, so what do you think about wind energy now? He's like, I, I actually, I love it. Like, it's really cool to be a part of something. They were from uh, Texas Tech, right? So they're in the heart of wind country. Uh, and uh, yeah, so they were focusing on it. And it was really cool. They had one thing about their design that was, that I really liked for the, they were smart, smart engineers for the program they were doing. They had CNC aluminum blades on theirs. So they said, when they crank up the speed in that wind tunnel, our blades aren't going to break. And so I asked them, is that, scale is that scalable to the industry? Right. And they just kind of looked at me. And I was like, I don't think so, guys. But I mean, that wasn't part of the thing. They were, so they were fantastic engineers, a bunch of smart uh, young minds uh, coming up into the wind industry. So it was exciting to see it. I liked it. The, the ACP included that in the program. It was good. Uh, there were 12, 12 teams plus another four that were at the collegiate level. I just want to read off their names to because a lot of them actually listen to the podcast, as it turns out. Brigham Young University, Cal State University, Maritime Academy, James Madison University, Texas Tech, like you mentioned, Joel, Pennsylvania State, so Penn State, Virginia Tech, University of Colorado, Boulder, very beautiful place, Johns Hopkins, outside Baltimore, Kansas State, which was the eventual winner, uh, Northern Arizona University, uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison, and Washington State, University Everett, and then there were four what they call learn along teams, so they're just getting their start in this in this uh, competition. California Polytechnic State University, um, Massachusetts Maritime Academy, which is close to us out here, University of Texas at Dallas, and then Universidad Una, sorry, Universidad Ana G Mendez. So that's a pretty good group right there, and. Hopefully, you know, GE or somebody, Vestas, offers these, these young students jobs when they come out of college because they have that experience. That's what this is all about, right? So congratulations to Kansas State for winning first overall, uh, first place. Uh, Northern Arizona came in second overall, and James Madison University uh, came in third overall. Congratulations to everybody. So the next competition is in New Orleans. And to enroll in that, if your college is interested, you need to reach out to the DOE. Just go on the DOE website, and you can find out how to enroll for that competition. 
So that's going to do it for the Uptime Podcast this week. Uh, check Rosie's engineering channel out, Engineering with Rosie, on YouTube. Uh, you can follow us on Apple iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and we're also on YouTube, so you can find us on multiple platforms. A lot of people like Spotify. While we're in San Antonio, people mentioned to me that they listen to us on Spotify, and I thought that was that was nice. So check us out on all your on your listening platforms and listen to us next week on the Uptime Podcast. <laughs>